This is a Media Lab podcast. Welcome to Putting It Together, the podcast that goes through the entire body of work of Stephen Sondheim, show by show and song by song. My name is Kyle Marshall, your self-described Sondheim expert. You know, one of the things that I've had to confront doing a podcast about Stephen Sondheim is that even though we need to acknowledge that there is a genius to this person coming up with the lyrics and the music to some of our favorite Broadway shows of all time, he was not an island and he was the first person to admit this. There's the obvious, of course, of like the actors infusing their own style into those roles, their own talents into those characters. But there was also the person who wrote the book. There is also the director who envisioned it on stage. But even more so, there's the people who took what he wrote and actually orchestrated it. And then, of course, the people that conduct that music and even play that music on a nightly basis. This is a huge preamble to say that I'm so excited to have Margaret Hall on the episode here today because she literally has written the book on Paul Gemignani, the person who has conducted, I think, almost every single Sondheim show, except for one, and I always forget which one it is that he has not done. But he has been so influential in being able to communicate the music that Sondheim has written to a wider audience. I'll let Margaret explain what that book looks like and when that is going to be available here in a moment. One thing I do want to jump into before we get into the episode, something that I kind of thought of while I was editing this episode, was the actual title, Poor Thing, which we only very slightly touch on in this episode. But something I was thinking about is how interesting it is that Mrs. Lovett refers to Lucy, refers to Sweeney Todd's wife, Benjamin Barker's wife, as poor thing. I I really admit that even within the song, she uses different words. Pure thing, she says at one time. Poor fool, poor girl, I believe she says at one point too. But I do think there is an importance, even with poor thing being a very well-known phrase in the English language, that that is how Mrs. Lovett chooses to refer to that person. It is not consistently poor woman, poor girl, poor person. It is poor thing. Because I think, in my interpretation, that is how Mrs. Lovett sees Lucy. She's a thing. Anyways, that's my deep dive analysis into the character. (laughs) Disagree with me all you want. I would love to hear other people's thoughts and feelings. But let's get right into the episode here then. Here's me talking with Margaret Hall about poor thing. Isn't that a room up there over the pie shop? If times are so hard, why don't you rent it out? That should bring in something. Up there? Oh, no one'll go near it. People think it's haunted. You see, years ago, something happened up there. Something not very nice. There was a barber and his wife, and he was beautiful. A proper artist with a knife, but they transported him for life. Margaret Hall, thank you so much for joining me here today. Thank you so much for having me. I think this is where we need to start off. Of course, we're here celebrating Stephen Sondheim, Sweeney Todd, all that good stuff. But very soon, when this episode goes live, your book is going to be coming out all about Paul Gemignani. And I want you to talk a little bit about it because I'm so excited for this book to be in my hands so I can actually read it. Yes, of course. So Gemignani, Life and Lessons from Broadway and Beyond, is coming out March 1st, 2022. And it is the first book of its kind to explore the life of a music director in the Broadway musical since 1972. And so what was that book? The last one was Lehman Engels' memoir, This Bright Day. And Gimignani, while it is officially classified as a biography, I personally consider it closer to a memoir, where mm. what I was really focused on doing was capturing Paul's side of the story. Because Paul is just as important to sort of the quad that is Sondheim, Hal Prince, Jonathan Tunick, and Paul Gimignani. But people very rarely talk to Jonathan and Paul. But they were in the room for all of these decisions. In a lot of cases, they were the ones making a lot of these decisions. And I'm very excited for people both to get to know this glorious man who I absolutely adore and consider family now, 
but also to really understand how important a music director is and how vital they are to the creative process and that they're more than just a person standing in the pit waving a stick. Well, yeah, definitely on this show, I know we've brought up because we've had some composers on this show as guests and they always like to bring up Jonathan Tunick specifically because when we Mm -hmm. think of the Sondheim sound and that kind of stuff, a lot of that is Jonathan Tunick going through and like these are the instruments we're going to actually going to pick to transpose this music. I'm glad that you're on here so we can actually bring in the conversation of Gemignani because I think it's that, that one thing that uh, Sondheim said like for almost all, all of his Tony wins at the very beginning is like there should be a Tony for music oh, director and why is there Steve not? Steve right. campaigned behind the scenes. Steve has tried very hard to bring it back. There was a Tony award for best musical direction. It existed until 1964 when it was made redundant at, I believe, almost the exact same time Best Orchestrator was made redundant through a number of people fighting, including Paul. We've gotten Best Orchestrator back. I'm hopeful that I will see a Best Music Director Tony Award again within my lifetime, but we yeah. shall see. We shall see. I guess without uh, spoiling too much, like what was, what was your inspiration for this? Like Why was it him that you wanted to focus on? I was actually connected with Paul right at pretty much the scariest point of the pandemic for people living in New York City. Right. On May 5th, 2020, I received a phone call out of the blue from a woman named Jennifer Ashley Tepper, who you might be familiar with. She is the director of creative programming at 54 Below. She's also a musical theater historian in her own right. And Mm -hmm. she's a friend of mine and kind of become a mentor over the years. And Jen basically told me, hey, I've got Lonnie Price and Paul Gimignani on the other line. I'm going to hop off. They want to talk to you about something, which is, you know, just a normal thing I, to be told to you at, I believe, 8 o'clock in the morning. I would have liked at least a five minute heads up on that, I think. Yeah, but. No text warning, just cold call <laughs> through email and phone conversations. Lonnie has been trying to get Paul to agree to let someone write a book for about mm. 20 years. Lonnie has known Paul since the Merrily We Roll Along days, and Paul is notorious for having like a claptrap memory and a story involving everybody. He's a perfect listener. Like he just sits there and he seems unassuming when you're not talking to him, but he is remembering everything that's going on around him and observing everything. Right. But Paul had always put Lonnie off, basically being like, oh, I'm too busy. I've got too much going on. I don't have enough time. Blah, 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 blah. Pandemic happens. Lonnie calls Paul and says, well, you officially have nothing but time. (laughs) And they initially talked to Jen, who immediately thought of me, which was very lovely. And when I first talked to Paul, I actually thought that he just wanted to talk to someone in my age bracket to figure out if there would be someone who was interested in these type of stories. And I didn't realize that he was testing me out as a writer until I got an email from him basically going, okay, great. Let me know when you're ready to start writing. (laughs) And we basically found our way together. Paul, I like to say that he merrily'd me in that he found someone at the beginning of their career and saw who they were supposed to be before they even knew it. Gotcha. Mm -hmm, And in mm -hmm. many ways, Paul held my hand through that transition process. Because in May of 2020, I was still not sure if I was fully ready to not be just a performer anymore. I'd been teaching musical theater history for a fair amount of time, but I was still sort of on the fence. And Paul basically saw a year and a half into the future and said, "Okay, yeah, no, this is what you're going to be doing for the rest of your life. Come here. Let's get to work. And he's done that for so many people. So one of the really joyous things about working on this book and talking to hundreds of his collaborators is realizing both how unique Paul is, but also how the way he treats all of us is not necessarily unique because he treats Mm. all of us with the utmost respect and care and love. And that's what I think of when I think about how this project started, is Paul saw what was supposed to happen and made sure it happened. I I always love those stories. I mean, you sometimes we focus a little bit too much on the jerks or the tirades that happen behind the scenes. And sometimes you don't take or stop enough and be like, hey, there's some actually some great people that work in this industry, too. And maybe we should celebrate them. Oh, yeah. Paul's incredibly gentle. Just guessing, like, do you know how many interviews you actually conducted with him? Like, how long did it take to go through his, like, basic life story? Well over 500 hours. So that's a lot of information. Paul and I talked pretty much every single day for about a seven-month span. Mm-hmm. 
And then once a week from that point, probably for another eight months. And was that mostly for, and this is now just me being curious, is that like you're getting his you know, story, um, going to other people and then coming back and just doing some fact checking here and there? Is that kind of the process? I'd say that's probably 75% of it. But then 25% yeah, yeah. was also him basically teaching me how to be a music director. So oh, I'm not okay. an instrumentalist. Yeah. I have very small hands and that do not span an octave on the piano. I am a vocalist, however, but in order to write Paul's story it was really important to me that I understood in my marrow what it is he does and what makes him so special amongst his field. Right. And so a lot of the time I call him and we just talk about life and then it would turn into him teaching me a concept about classical music or he'd put on like an old Leonard Bernstein record and we'd listen to a specific like three measures over and over until I had internalized it and things like that. Uh, like if I could play an instrument, he certainly had me emotionally prepared to step into a pit. However, mm -hmm. I just do not have the skills to back it up in that regard. So I guess to put a fine point on this here then, so we you have like the composer, right? Sondheim's sitting down, writing the lyrics, the actual music notes that are going to accompany that. Then you get someone like a Jonathan Tunick to come in and be like, okay, this is how the instrumentation is going to be, et cetera, et cetera. Geminani comes out here to conduct it. So what is he bringing then specifically to the piece? Paul is the person who breathes life into it. I think of him as the life giver, where Steve creates the skeleton, Jonathan molds it into sort of a Galatea sculpture, quote unquote. <laughs> and Paul is the person who teaches it to walk and talk. Right. And there's a reason that he is beloved by actors in this industry, because he is deeply committed to sort of marrying the music and performers in a way that mm. not everyone is, unfortunately. The reason why Paul has been so invaluable to everyone he's ever worked with, but in this case, particularly within the quad, is it can be really hard to lift Steve's work off the page the first time. And mm. Paul can make it look easy right. because he so gets in the skin of the music. He is the person who lives in that ephemeral place in sort of the etherized air that passes between the performer and the audience, those sound waves, that's where Paul is. Yeah. And that's where he lives and works and does his magic. And that's why it's so hard to have a Tony for Best Music Director, because it's something you can't see. It's not tangible. The way Paul was able mm -hmm. to get them to reinstate the Best Orchestrator Award was, okay, you can look at the written out score and grade that like it's an essay, I guess. That's not really right. how orchestrating works, but if you really want to look at it that way, you can do that. With music direction, if you don't pay any attention to what's happening sort of around him in the air, it just looks like someone's standing there with a stick. But if you are paying attention to sort of that aura around him, it's intoxicating and all-encompassing. Yeah, it's almost one of those things I want to like actually watch him work almost and just see mm -hmm. what that process looks like. Because what this reminds me of, I'm a huge movie fan as well, is it sounds very similar to the great editors like the great film editors that are out there it's like yeah here's like the raw bits now make something out of this and a really good editor can be like okay cut this out no focus on here we don't need this this is where we need to focus on those sorts of decisions to actually kind of create the thing that we all like love afterwards i don't know how much you want to reveal about this was there any like specific stories he had about sweeney todd oh yes so there's a number about sweeney mm -hmm. todd Paul does not like to say he has favorites, <laughs> but if he were forced on the rack to declare his favorite show, Sweeney's certainly in the top three, if not the number one spot. That's both because he adores the music and he adores the show, but also because of how amazing the environment was backstage. The mm -hmm. Sweeney Todd company became a family in every sense of the word. Yeah. And there are so many stories in the book about that family. But the one that I think might interest your readers, the not readers, your listeners the most <laughs> right now, is actually Sweeney Todd's whistle, which is okay, one yeah, of, yeah. I'd say, the most iconic points in the show in terms of like soundscape idiosyncrasies. Mm -hmm. And you can thank Mr. Gemignani for that. It was originally a gong, which is what's in the licensed scoring, but Paul didn't think that that was harsh enough. So he talked to Steve and he talked to Hal and he went upstate with 
sort of the set team and they got a real factory whistle that they attached to the set. And when it was first put off, it was so loud, it almost burst a couple of people's eardrums who were standing too close to it. I so bet, they had to yeah. move it to the back of what was then the Eurus Theater to sort of muffle the sound with curtains and things mm-hmm. like that. But because of that, the stage manager couldn't be the one to trigger the cue because they can't see it. And so what they yeah, did yeah. is they attached a series of hoses to the whistle in the very back corner ran it down through the stage floor and then down into the pit of the urus. And Paul would press almost like a bicycle foot pump about four seconds before he wanted the whistle to sound because that's how long it took for the air to pass through to get to the whistle. Mm -hmm. And so when you listen to that original cast recording, that would be Paul conducting while also keeping time with his feet in the future. Oh my God, (laughs) that sounds so difficult. It is so, such a bold opening. I still remember vividly listening to Sweeney Todd for the very first time, the original Broadway cast. And, you know, it starts and then that whistle goes like, whoa, <laughs> like this is not something you're going to fall asleep to. Like the, I am at attention here now. screamed in the theater. Yeah, yeah. So I startled. This sounds, of course, super fascinating. How do people actually get their hands on this book? Yes. So it will be out in late spring, early summer of 2022. You can currently pre-order it from just about any book retailer your heart desires. It's being published by Applause Theater and Cinema Books, so you can order directly through them, or you can contact any local bookstore. I recommend if you are an online order type of person, bookshop.org donates a lot of good money to independent bookstores through online sales. I will say here too, just as check your local independent bookstores too because oftentimes they can pre-order stuff for you and they're great people to help support i have a friend who works at a bookstore in manhattan Mm -hmm. it's one of the only independent bookstores left go off opalite books and she orders (laughs) just about everything i need for my research directly for me yeah that's awesome i have my pre-order already put in so i'm yeah just awaiting for it to arrive in the mail it's gonna be great thank you i guess the other question that we need to lead into here then this is such a broad question, but do you recall the first time you were introduced to Stephen Sondheim? Very good question. It was probably when I was in middle school, but mm-hmm. potentially earlier because I was very into theater from a very young age. I attached myself to Oscar Hammerstein II before I could really walk in a straight line. And what, why him that you first oh, his poetry. were inspired by? Mm-hmm. His poetry and... People like to fault him for his sentimentality, but I find it more honest than many lyricists. And that's also very similar to sort of the way I look at the world. I look at things with the saturation turned up, and so did Oscar. (laughs) In terms of Steve, West Side Story was probably the first piece I saw of his. But in terms of what I call like the Sondheim aesthetic, where it's like he's doing music and lyrics, he's got creative control here. It was actually probably Sweeney. Because when I was in seventh grade, my voice dropped and I suddenly turned into a character actress. (laughs) (laughs) And one of the first songs I was given for auditions after that had dropped was Wait from Sweeney Todd. Oh, interesting. So I listened through that whole cast album. I watched the pro shot with Angela and George and off to the races from then on. I mean, that, that brings up another thing I've been asking some of my guests here this season, which is, uh, for you, is there a definitive version of Sweeney Todd that you enjoy? Like, is it the pro shot? Is it the original cash recording? Is it something else? Ooh, that's a hard question. I'd say that for me, there are definitive recordings of songs, gotcha. but not necessarily a definitive whole production. Right. If you want to talk about a definitive direction, it's the pro shot. Because I think what Hal did is just as intrinsic to the show as anything else. Yeah, but this is something we I keep coming up to. <laughs> the, I only found out like, you know, a year into doing this podcast, which is like, yeah, we're focusing on lyrics. Yes, we're focusing on the music sometimes. But just as important is like 
coming in at this is like this is a piece of theater at the same time mm-hmm. so how it is being presented to you also impacts how you are going to interpret this song and how it works inside the show itself but for sure that that original set is is quite remarkable i'm, I'm actually a little bit disappointed i had a guest a while ago not for this season but they had actually been able to see the original production in 1979 mm-hmm. and they were mentioning that the original production like literally started like as you were getting seated at like these grave diggers like digging into the dirt and stuff like that <laughs> before yeah. anything happened which you don't really see in the pro shot all that much but still like what, what a weird just a different way to enter into a theater i kind of got to the pro shot i think they had actually stopped shoveling as much as they had on broadway because yeah. there were a couple of issues where lynn carey started aspirating on the fake soil yeah not and great like that because because he is down there <laughs> yeah and so i'm pretty sure that's why it's not as clear in the pro shot is because they didn't want george to rise and just start coughing so we of course are talking about poor thing here we've just finished the worst pies in london right when he has come in Mrs. lovett like throws herself at him like no you have to wait here and stay here uh, and the song of course is the setup for her to really kneel him a little bit to reveal that he is benjamin barker who she thinks that's who it is but hasn't 100 percent figured that out yet before we started recording you said that you have Mrs. Lovett theories, and now I kind of yes. want to make a spin-off podcast called Lovett Theories. <laughs> yes. just delve into I'm it. But what are your so, what are these theories? So many thoughts about Mrs. Lovett. Mm-hmm. <laughs> the main ones that I have that factor into poor thing. What happened to Mr. Lovett? You okay? Yes. Good question. Good question. Um, sort of. There are three things that tie into that because if you look at that original set, the way that it's written. Meat Pies is in a slightly different fresher painted font mm, than where it okay, says yeah. Love It. Uh, my personal theory is I think it said Love It's Meat Shop. And then yeah. the missus is also curled up in the corner. And there's many a theory. I will save you the 15-page paper I wrote on all of this. <laughs> but the big question that I always have when I listen to Poor Thing is how does Mrs. Lovett know all of this? I wanted to bring this up too. Yeah. How much of this is actually what happened and how much of this is something she might have partially orchestrated. Mm-hmm. Cause we know that Steve regards Mrs. Lovett as the true villain of the piece. hundred percent. Yeah. Hugh also does Hugh Wheeler. So what we know of Mr. Lovett, we know that he supposedly dies of dropsy. That's basically <laughs> all we're given. Now you can go here or there on if Mr. Lovett even actually existed or if he's just kind of, a position mm-hmm. in her life, but if we go with the idea that he did exist, dropsy was a sort of catch-all ailment that could apply to a number of things. In some cases, edema and gout, which would make sense if he was a butcher, but also dropsy-like symptoms could come from arsenic poisoning. If Good. you yeah. look at early medical journals from the Georgian Empire era, and I have personally come to the conclusion that I think Mrs. Lovett is who gave Lucy the poison Mm. and that she partially orchestrated it. Lucy's also living still with Mrs. Lovett at this point in sort of the storytelling that we see of Poor Thing. Who is the one who lets the Beetle Bamford up? Yeah, there's all these unanswered questions. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I I find this to be such a foreboding song when you really think about the context Mm -hmm. surrounding what she's not saying of this part. The the one thing that was brought up in, or one of the things that was brought up in the Worst Pies in London episode that I've already recorded is there is the way to read some, some of these songs in this score the first time you watch it, and then also how you can read them the second time you watch it. Because I think yeah. there's a lot of foreshadowing and like callbacks and what they're saying is actually not true. And the Mrs. Lovett character as performed, right, the very first time we see her, she's like, talking a mile a minute and like just going and showing that she's like oh i'm I'm just saying things randomly and revealing all these secrets but it's like but she's still actually kind of just revealing the stuff she wants to let people know too oh, yeah. and you kind of f- find that out at the very end so even in this one she's being very intentional with what she's revealing how she's revealing it and then you also have to be not necessarily that she's outright lying but what is she overemphasizing over other aspects of this story She's a lot smarter than people realize, I think. Right. She plays the baddie old lady because that gets her what she wants. Correct. But you never know. Maybe maybe Mr. Lovett was her first for- foray into meat pies. Oh, oh absolutely. <laughs> of her testing Another it out. One of my right. where it's like, does she really just come up with it during the beginning of A Little Priest? Or is this, times is hard, a woman <laughs> alone with limited wind.
Hi there everyone, just Kyle breaking into the middle of the episode here to thank some of the people and organizations that help this show continue to go. So if you would like to help support this show for absolutely free and give a rating and review on whatever app you listen to podcasts in, it's very greatly appreciated. It really is how other people find this show. And especially now that Spotify has opened it up so that you can leave reviews there. If you are a Spotify listener, consider doing that. And that really helps us out. Me out. I'm the only person here. If you'd like to help monetarily, which will only help to grow and make this show better, you can do so over at our Patreon page. Please do not donate if it impacts you negatively financially, but it is why we are able to do the extra bonus episode each month, our Sondheim Adjacent podcast, which at the end of the month you're going to be hearing me and a guest talk about Tick Tick Boom and Stephen Sondheim's involvement with that. Uh, by the way, we do have a new patron this week, so a huge thank you to Dean. And of course, I also need to give a huge thank you to the God That's Good tier from Patreon, the Suave Sextet of Jack, Todd, Carrie, Witty, Louise, and Christopher. Putting Together is a proud member of the Alberta Podcast Network, locally grown, community supported. The Alberta Podcast Network promotes and supports Alberta-made podcasts and connects their audiences with Alberta-based businesses and organizations. This week, the Alberta Podcast Network is a sponsor for us, so let's go and listen to one of our other great shows. Hi there, my name is Kyle. Oh, wow, I was bright. Yeah, I guess I'm Dave. And I'm the machine. <laughs> So exciting. New well, this, season. We have to be bright, Dave. We are in the year 1982 Ooh. here on Kyle and Dave versus the Machine. The deep and rich fiction that we have created mm -hmm. because of this autonomous robot that is forcing us to watch movies from a very specific year. The robot's name is not Kyle Marshall. Gross. Again, deep and rich fiction. We should point out that if we don't review the films that the Machine picks out, that it has threatened to start another apocalypse. We are going to be jumping into the year 1982 here very soon. Soon, such movies as The Verdict, E.T., Das Boot, Grease 2, 48 Hours, Victor Victoria, Conan the Barbarian, Rocky 3, Star Trek 2, The Dark Crystal, Tron, Blade Runner, The Thing, and of course the movie that's going to be Dave's favorite movie of the year, Best Little Whorehouse in Texas. <laughs> I'm excited. I have watched so many of these films mm -hmm. that it's going to be exciting A, to go back to see uh, whether I'm wrong about any of them. I'm not because I'm never wrong. And B, to watch uh, good movies that are fun to watch, Cal. I could use some less challenging films. <laughs> That's a great way to pitch it to our audience. Come to us so that you don't have to think. <laughs> That is a good tagline. When you talk, it makes you less pretty. We, of course, are a proud member of the Alberta Podcast Network, and we release new episodes every Friday. Go and subscribe anywhere you get podcasts from. You know what? It's 1982, although not all of these are available streaming. Watch these movies with us. And then, you know, just revisit the 80s. Or if you're really young, you know, get off your skinny butts and just watch good movies. <laughs> Pour the Coke on your living room table, boot up this movie, and watch along with us. Just bring a towel. Colin Dave vs. The Machine. Saving the world. You're welcome. This episode of Putting It Together is also brought to you by Alberta Association of Optometrists, proudly celebrating a century of caring for Albertans. You know what happens. Many people don't call their optometrist first for urgent eye care when they need it. From spring cleaning mishaps to winter eye infections, if you or your family have an emergency, an eye emergency, doctors of optometry are trained to diagnose, treat, and prescribe medications. No referral necessary. And just a reminder, Alberta Health coverage is available towards your urgent eye care appointment. To find an optometrist in your area, visit optometrists.ab.ca. The Alberta Association of Optometrists represents almost 800 doctors of optometry in over 80 communities across the province. Members are highly trained, regulated health professionals who provide primary eye health and vision care to Albertans. Learn more at optometrists.ab.ca. Well, this is how we kind of get into the song at the very first. So the very first part, Mrs. Lovett... Actually, there, there's a bit of um, book scene that's right before this, right? About uh, Sweeney being like, well, if times are so hard for you, like there's that empty room up there, which is where he used to live. So maybe you could rent that out. And she reveals like, well, you know, there's 
there's something that happens, something not very nice is how she enters into this song and then starts singing. There was a barber and his wife and he was beautiful, a proper artist with a knife, but they transported him for life and he was beautiful. And she lets him know Barker, his name was Benjamin Barker. He had this wife, you see, pretty little thing, silly little knit, had her chance for the moon on a string. Poor thing, poor thing. The barber and his wife and he was beautiful. A proper artist with a knife But they transported him for life And he was beautiful Barker, his name was Benjamin Barker Transported? What was his crime? Foolishness He had this wife, you see Pretty little thing, silly little knit Had her chance for the moon so I think it's telling that the first thing she does is kind of show her hand in terms of her, at times, unrequited love for mm-hmm. Sweeney or Benjamin in this case. Although I personally am of the belief, and this depends on the actress, but I believe at least with Angela. She knows before she starts singing that it's Benjamin Barker. I, I agree with that. At least with her performance, I totally agree. Yeah, where, where it's like she goes into this and she's like, oh, I know. And I almost wonder if this was rehearsed. If she was like, if he ever comes back, here's what I'm going to say. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> this is so different than Worst Pies in London, where Worst Pies feel sort of like, okay, I know I need to do this, 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 and this, but this happened when I was not expecting it. And then the tonal shift that happens here, it's like, mm-hmm. okay, she knows this rhythm. She's practiced this. She knows this story. A little bit more measured, right? It's not so fast, so quick. And I also find it really telling sort of a proper artist with a knife. First off, I'm sure part of it is it's a good rhyme with life, but also (laughs) she works with a razor, not a knife. She's who works with a knife and theoretically her husband. And I I find that just a very interesting turn of phrase. And then also the little book scene interstitial between Barker, his name was Benjamin Barker, and he had this wife you see. Where Sweeney says transported, what was his crime? And she just flatly says foolishness. Yes. Good line. Good line. Doesn't really answer his question, but yeah. (laughs) And I feel like it's so also telling, again, of how smart Nellie is. She's like, sometimes you got to play the game. And he refused to play the game and he paid for it. It's another sort of tip of that Machiavellian hand. Yeah, Yeah. Yeah. I think this is so intrinsic to her character of being like, she might be of the lower ranks of society but she she is one of those people who knows everything that's going on she mm-hmm. she knows what is what is happening and how to work it to her to her advantage i like one thing i don't want to blow past it like you already mentioned about yes this showing her like almost unrequited love for for sweeney for benjamin barker but she does mention twice and he was beautiful mm-hmm. and we'll, we'll contrast that here in a moment with how she speaks about his wife but also i think she believes it i, I honestly think she was like smitten oh, yeah. with this guy one of the other theories I always think about sort of in that connection she has with the Beatle, I almost wonder if what happened sort of went awry and in that she had initially sort of played along with things because she thought, okay, so Lucy will be the one who gets gone and then I'll help Benjamin through and all that sort of stuff. Yeah, I, I, I don't for, I don't think the uh, the idea was for him to get shipped yeah, off. To open with the song with He Was Beautiful and to press it the way she does. I feel like that's an undercurrent to the entire number. This is maybe me stretching a little bit. I went to school and got an English degree, so sometimes I pick a little bit too much in, into things. <laughs> but even starting the song, like the song is called Poor Thing, right? But you said there was a barber and his wife but this whole song is about her mm-hmm. <laughs> like really at the end of the day it should be like there was this this woman and her husband or Who whatever however she wants to a yeah right exactly but that's how it starts like we're going to talk about him first even though this story is about her here is the rabbit hole i ended up going on this week which is there is that lyric had her chance for the moon on a string which i intrinsically understand right she could have the world we were even talking before this about there is that idea of like roping the moon right um which i think is in it's a wonderful life i'm gonna rope the moon for you and stuff and like pull you down that sort of thing so that idea i think has been around but i thought like that actual phrase moon on a string was 
just like a, a phrase, just a known idiom. I was like, oh, I want to look it up and see where it came from. No such thing. The closest that there is is the phrase moon on a stick. That That is a thing. <laughs> and that is a phrase. Um, but that, that was that even that was coined after the show came out. Um, but moon on a stick is something that has entered in the popular lexicon, especially over in Britain, because apparently yeah. there is these, um, what are their names? Stuart Lee and Richard Herring of the BBC show Fist of Fun were the people who coined that phrase. And then the only other thing it has, there's a 2015 book called A Court of Thorns. Oh, sorry, oh, A Court gosh, of Thorns yeah. and Roses by Sarah Mass or Moss. And there's a character who says, if I offer you the moon on a string, will you give me a kiss too? Mm. That is... The only times I can find where this thing even exists in popular culture. Yeah. Hey, there's a reason people refer to Steve as sort of the modern Shakespeare. He invents a lot of idioms and a lot of phrasings that hit our ear in so natural a way we just pick them up. Yeah. I just find that so fascinating to be like, oh, yeah, this is a thing that had to have been around for like hundreds of years. Like, apparently not. (laughs) Apparently there is not this thing that's been around for years and years and years for us. However... Mrs. Lovett continues on, and this is what she says. She says, There were these two, you see, wandered her like mad, one of them a judge, t'other one is beetle. Every day they'd nudge and they'd wheedle, but she wouldn't budge from her needle. Too bad, pure thing. So they merely shipped the poor blighter off south, they did, leaving her with nothing but grief and a year old kid. Did she use her head even then? Oh no, God forbid. Poor fool. Ah, uh, but there was worse yet to come. Poor thing. And of course, then she mentions Joanna, the baby's name was Pretty Little Joanna. Wanted to like mad, one of them a judge, tell them what is beetle. Every day they'd nudge and they'd wheedle, but she wouldn't budge from her needle. Too bad, pure thing. So they nearly shipped the poor blighter off, and they did, leaving her with nothing but grief and a year old kid. Did she use a head even then? Oh no, God forbid, poor fool. Ah, but there was worse yet to come. Thing. Joanna, that was the child's name, pretty little Joanna. Go on. I'm just obsessed with the fact that they went with the term beetle for beetle band. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Because here in the States, no one knows what that means. Beetle is a weird one, because I know even when I first listened, I was like, I don't, I don't know what a beetle is. I have no idea what that means. I think it's very interesting, almost as like an Easter egg, which mm-hmm. Steve is the king of these in his lyrics. Um, If you know what a beetle is, which, dear listener, if you aren't aware, think of sort of like a head of church who is not a priest or a pastor, but who is sort of the leader of a partition of the Church of England, basically. And then you think about, so it's a judge who is supposed to be the arbiter of humane justice Mm -hmm. and a beetle who is supposed to be the arbiter of celestial religious justice. The two of them sort of coming together to corrupt this being who is pretty immediately referred to as pure thing, whereas supposedly their roles are supposed to be about protecting sort of that idea of purified virginal womanhood. Meanwhile, they're the ones directly forcing it into downfall. And so I find that to be a very interesting comparison. I just wish more people knew what a beetle was so that they could catch that comparison. Because <laughs> I think for a lot of people, they just kind of assume that's his first name. Well, that or like, I, I was again going back to my initial recording when I was teenager. I, from context clues, I guess I just assumed it was sorry a policeman of some kind. Like he was the law. Like I thought he was maybe like he was a judge and the law that were kind of in bed together, sort of thing, which can kind of work too. But well, yeah, no, sense. it is very much a church thing. <laughs> very fascinating to me. I mean, this entire show, too, it it sounds so dumb to say it out loud because it it sounds so obvious. But just to state it plainly, like, is not the most uh, positive against, like, law enforcement (laughs) slash church enforcement slash higher society. Like, it's pretty negative towards it. But I'd say more than negative. (laughs) Right. Yeah. I'd say at times it's outright caustic. Because I always love how Sondheim uses a language and will change words here and there. Uh, of course, we said poor thing already here in the lyrics. I love how he then changed that to pure thing instead mm. of poor thing. Not really a rhyme, but it like it sounds uh, very, very, very similar there for us. Um, also saying poor fool and then poor thing again. Mrs. Lovett is saying these words and what words she's choosing to use when um, oh, and yeah. really trying to push him to madness. 
And in talking about musicality, think about the way that vowels sound when they're held in a certain place. The pure, mm-hmm. that liquid U that Angela mm-hmm. uses, it's so good. And it's so delicious on the ear. Like it makes you want to lean forward and listen closer because of how it sort of washes over you sonically. For sure. Yeah. yeah. Right before that pure thing. I, I just love how the, the run that that goes on where it's judge, nudge, budge, and then it's beetle, weedle, needle. So mm. we're using those like very compact couplets that are kind of going down there. I, I guess it, it always depends how people encounter this for the first time. I guess I'll ask you, were you personally, when you first encountered Sweeney Todd, were you surprised that the old crazy beggar woman turns out to be his wife? Like, did you know that like, way before it happens? I knew it specifically because the first one I encountered Sweeney Todd was listening through the cast album with the sheet music in front of me. And at the front of the sheet music, it has it noted that it is sung by the same performer. Oh, okay. So for me, did not know that. So I vividly remember, and I've told this story already about the first time I did it, I had like these big like headphones on, listened to it front, front to back. And I'm, I can visually see things in my head. So it really did play like a movie as I was like encountering mm-hmm. for the first time. And I remember that revelation still being like such a shock to me. Like, oh my God, this makes so much more sense. <laughs> and then everything I'm fitting to place, like, Ms. Love has been lying this whole time. Oh my God. Like, this is, this makes all, all the more sense sort of thing. So I always think that's such a shock. But even here of her not using her head, like she's negative towards this woman who really didn't do anything wrong right yeah she's she's pretty she's um critical of this person and losing her head is exactly what happened she didn't use her head and now she's lost her head a little bit yep so here's kind of i'll call it the bridge although that's really not what this is but this short section here where she says well beetle calls on her all polite poor thing poor thing the judge he tells her is all contrite he blames himself for her dreadful plight she must come straight to his house tonight poor thing poor thing The judge, he tells her, is all contrite. He blames himself for her dreadful plight. She must come straight to his house tonight. Poor thing, poor thing. In terms of the music here, it always reminds me so much of... In the opening where you have the Ballad of Sweeney Todd, when things start to pick up when Sweeney himself walks out, and says, attend the tale of Sweeney Todd. Yeah. It reminds me of that same sort of pushing energy under this, where you're being lifted as an audience into the memory, where right. it feels notably different from the opening of this song, that you're sort of carried into the daydream, quote unquote, with her. Day nightmare? <laughs> but <laughs> you're carried with Nellie into this place. Mm-hmm. And then when you see sort of to the side, that visual of you're watching the dancer, if you're watching the film, it cuts away to the cut scene. It's the sense of foreboding that like sits in your stomach without weighing you down. That I think is so key to the sonic landscape of Sweeney Todd. Yeah. What, what I say in like is a weird way to phrase this, but what I appreciate about this song is like, if they had really wanted to, they could have they could go way more graphic within mm-hmm. this scene. And even in the movie, they could go super more graphic if they really wanted to. Yeah. But they don't. They allow the music to basically tell the story here for us and be like, we know. Like we know what happened here. It reminds me of the best horror writers mm-hmm. where instead of showing you the monster, they let your imagination come up with what the monster is. Right. Because with the way human beings work, the worst possible thing is slightly different for every person. Right. And if you let someone's own imagination supply it, it will terrify everyone in the room versus if you sort of supply your own explanation for what the worst thing is, you'll probably get like a third of the audience. And then maybe a third will find it kind of comical. And then a third is sort of in the middle. That's so true. In the movie, they change some lyrics in this section, which is, uh, this is how it goes. It says, There was this judge, you see, wandered her like mad. Every day he sent her a flower. But did she come down from her tower, sat up there and sulked by the hour? Poor fool. But there was worse yet to come. Poor thing. Mm. Any any idea of why they decided to change it for the movie? Like why they had to compress that? 
I don't actually know why, but I assume it's because Alan Rickman was playing the judge and he sort of needed to become the full Duder antagonist. Right. Gotcha. Which is the way that it's sort of split between the Beatle and the judge. By making the Beatle more of like a quote unquote delivery mechanism of Lucy, <laughs> it puts yeah, yeah. much more focus of the villainy on the judge, in this case, Alan Rickman, which I think would just make sense in terms of Hollywood storytelling. Yeah, I, I think I think you're right. I it's, it's I, I still remember watching that movie in theaters when it first came out, <laughs> and of course at that time I was like, "Wait, they changed uh, they changed the lyrics," and it's <laughs> shocking me at the time. I'm much more receptive to that now. I don't think things need necessarily adhere a hundred percent to the score, but I still remember like, "Wait a second, they changed something. How dare they?" Yeah, and it's always confusing, especially if you know all the words to that original cast album. Here is how the song ends here, though. Of course, when she goes there, poor thing, poor thing, they're having this ball all in masks. There's no one she knows there, poor dear, poor thing. She wanders tormented and drinks, poor thing. The judge has repented, she thinks, poor thing. Oh, where is Judge Turpin, she asks. He was there, all right, only not so contrite. She wasn't no match for such craft, you see, and everyone thought it so droll. They figured she had to be daft, you see, so all of them stood there and laughed, you see, poor soul. Poor thing. And then, of course, it ends kind of in the roar of Sweeney's like, <laughs> would nobody have mercy on her? When she goes there, poor thing, poor thing, they're having this ball all in masks. There's no one she knows, the poor dear, poor thing. She wanders tormented and drinks, poor thing. The judge has repented, she thinks, poor thing. Oh, where is Judge Turpin, she asks. He was there all right, only not so contrite. She wasn't no match for such craft, you see, and everyone thought it so droll. They figured she had to be daft, you see, so all of them stood there and laughed, you see, poor soul, poor thing. Would no one have mercy on her? So it is you, Benjamin Barker. She's playing him like a fiddle. Oh, so much. Like the 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 repeated of that poor thing, poor thing. She knows exactly what's gonna get a reaction out of Benjamin. Mm. Um, she's she's right on that rhythm. I like to think she's staring directly at him during this sequence and watching right. him sort of experience what she's saying. Because when you get down to it, in that last little section of she wasn't no match for such craft, you see, and everyone thought it's so droll. They figured she had to be daft, you see, so all of them stood there and laughed, you see. What is that actually saying? The <laughs> people stood and laughed at her. But what is the crap? What did people think was a droll happenstance? She's saying a lot of nothing. But the way that she's saying it, again, it's letting Benjamin Barker fill in what his worst nightmares are, what could have happened when he wasn't there. Because, yeah, again, Lovett hmm. most likely was not at this party. Well, so that was what I was going to bring up. And like, that's why I was so um, excited when you talked about like love it theories here Mm. is that I don't not believe that she was most likely raped or sexually assaulted at this party, but it's like how she got there. She kind of goes over like, (laughs) so this is again, like, did she let the beetle come? Did she actually take her to the party? Like there's some things that we're not getting the, the piece actually connected to hundred percent. And you're right. Like, how would she know all this happened? Mm-hmm. Right. Like this is not uh, obviously not everyone's going around like, oh, yeah, there's the judge who like had sex with that woman at that weird mask party the other weekend. Like so she knows a lot more than than anyone really should. My personal theory, again, going back to me thinking that Mrs. Lubbock gave her the arsenic, which is what fully drove her mad, mm-hmm. is basically that Lucy sort of comes home. She's like in tatters, probably bleeding in shock probably having a bit of a breakdown. Mrs. Lovett gets the words she can from her sort of through the garbled inability to communicate that comes with that kind of adrenaline in your system. Maybe one or two of the words was they laughed at me, which could mean any number of things. It could mean that they laughed that she showed up at this party without a mask or did she get too drunk trying to find Mm -hmm. him or something like that. But I like to think that Mrs. Lovett was given like a couple of these clues from Lucy's ramblings. And then I think Mrs. Lovett gave Lucy enough arsenic to kill her. Right. But that Lucy did not get it all down and was left in the mad state. And I think the way that she rambles 
is almost like a preservation of the way I think she would have rambled when she made it back home. Yeah. Yeah. The idea of when the way that we know the beggar woman speaks later when we see her again, Mm -hmm. that maybe a couple like just one off phrases she said while sort of head rolling, eyes lolling back and forth as Mrs. Love is trying to figure out what happened. No match for such craft, stood there and laughed. Like little phrases like that where she doesn't really know how these string together, that there's something. But she delivers it with such, her as in Mrs. Lovett in this case, she delivers them with such fervorous energy that Benjamin fills it in and doesn't kind of go, wait, what are you saying? Yeah, no, I like that. I like that reading. What what this also brings to mind is how how this whole entire conversation started with her uh, almost beginning with like a proper artist with a knife, right? She's really Mm -hmm. emphasizing that at the very beginning. And with that reading too, like she's fine slipping some person some arsenic or grinding up her husband perhaps after he drops dead but she cannot go fully and be like i am going to murder people myself with a knife or 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 something like that cats are going to be the biggest one the is is as far as i can actually go so she needs that person to come and do the dirty work because she can't go all the way so again i think this is a big revelation of character and motivation and, and what's going on in her head And I think partially she's also smart enough to know if they had, say, been caught by Judge Mm -hmm. Turpin later in the show, how easy would it have been for her to pin it all on Benjamin Barker and say, I'm just an innocent woman. I just I got Mm -hmm. caught up in it and I couldn't fight him off and I just had to go along. Right. Yeah. yeah, yeah. I think she's smart enough to know that she kind of gets that plausible deniability in society that she lives in, provided she can hide behind someone else. Yeah, you, you even kind of see that, too, when the Beatle does show up in Act 2. It's like, well, I don't have the key. Mr. Todd always carries the key. So I don't even know what's going down in the bake room. Like, I just make the pies. I don't actually go and cook them or anything like that either. So, yeah, it's an interesting way that she's always throwing off to somebody else. She's never culpable. Oh, yeah. In in the book, Finishing the Hat, uh, Sondheim writes a little bit about this song at the very end where he says, uh, like, one of his big dictums, of course, is content dictates form. And he says, this is a good example of it, because Mrs. Lovett is chattering away as she did before, but this time with a purpose. She thinks she has recognized Sweeney as Benjamin Barker, her tenant of 15 years ago, and is driving him into a fury of remembrance. Instead of the meandering of her first song, this one takes on a calculated regularity of rhythm and rhyme that, like Poe's relentless telltale heart, drives Todd to the breaking point. Mm. So that was his uh, impetus for making this song. I find it so interesting how he uses the word remembrance there mm. because Benjamin's not remembering anything. This all yeah, happened after he was gone. Exactly. Like she's yeah, yeah. like implanting this memory in his mind, which That's I right. find a very sort of interesting use of language. And of course it's Steve. So nothing's an accident. <laughs> right. Exactly. Yeah, I think that there's so much like wrapped up into the song. And what always excites me so much about Sweeney Todd as as a theater piece is that there's always something different I can see or pull out of it every time I listen to it. Or there's a phrase or a orchestration like, oh, that's so interesting that they put that mm-hmm. there. And like that references this. And so, yeah, this is this is good. This is great. I know you had mentioned that you wanted to talk a little bit about how Tim Burton stages this versus, of course, how the stage version stages this. Uh, So I guess open that. How does Tim Burton stage this? So the way that Tim Burton stages this is as a full cutaway scene. Mm -hmm. Whereas in Prince's original staging, it's kind of clear that this is still like from Lovett's mental point of mind. They don't completely black her and Sweeney out when they have sort of the ball happening on the side. It is a full hard cut in the Tim Burton piece of, yes, you still hear Lovett's voice over it, but you don't see her for about two minutes. You focus on the lovely Laura Michelle Kelly as Lucy and Mm -hmm. Alan Rickman. And the way that it's cut, it almost feels like a little mini movie within a movie. And the specific camera angles that are used, it's almost positioning what Lovett is saying as fact in an interesting way. Where we just sort of talk about how she's sort of an unreliable narrator in this context. The way that it's shot in the Burton film this is what happened. And he's giving you more visual details to flesh out even what Lovett is saying. That's the tricky tightrope you have to walk, I find, with film adaptations, right? Is that you, you don't want to like call, uh, show your hand too quickly mm-hmm. with Mrs. Lovett necessarily. At the same time, with, with the film, it can be like, we are showing you this and this is 100% fact. 
and mm-hmm. if we make it too obvious that this is like a dream or something like that, then it's like, oh wait, is she is she is lying to him then? And then we don't believe her for the rest of the movie, uh, way quicker than what we're supposed to as an audience. So it's like that tricky thing of how do you show this? And I have some thoughts. You could probably still have her forefront and like have that dream happening behind them and then come back. You want to go like super theatrical with it, sort of thing. But I I think it it's interesting that you bring that up because I think you're right. Overall, I think it might be more important to see her and seeing how Sweeney's reacting than actually showing visually what is going on with uh, with that cutaway. And I think part of it is that they cut all the little interstitials once she really gets into the song. That's true. Where yes. instead of being like, okay, so we see something and then it comes back to, my, you like a good story, don't you? <laughs> and then goes back in and comes back out the way that it does in the stage show. Once we're in Lucy's world, we're in Lucy's world. So for you, if you take a look at the entire score of Sweeney Todd, mm-hmm. where would you rate Poor Thing? Is that like, you know, top, middle, bottom of the list? Like, I don't know how you'd rate that. There's a lot of songs in this, yeah. in this score, too. So if I were to sort of break it into like quarters. Yeah. I'd say it's in the second quarter. It's not in the Little Priest tier of all time greatest songs. <laughs> sure, sure, sure. But like it's above Pirelli's for me, as much of a bop as Pirelli's is. I feel like <laughs> Poor Thing is the kind of song that you can really sit with like we have today and really deconstruct it line by line, comma by comma. Yeah, yeah. Are you telling me, though, that you do not sit down and just relax to parlor songs? Because I'm pretty sure <laughs> that is top tier songwriting. <laughs> True mentor. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. But to me, I'd say it's probably... I put it in maybe 14 or 15 if right. I were ranking things numerically. Where it's not the most interesting song in the show. But if I were to mm-hmm. play Mrs. Lovett, I would spend a lot of time on this specific song. For sure. Yeah, because yeah. I feel like almost more, like everyone focuses on Worst Pies in London when it comes to Lovett. I feel like this is more telling of who she actually is than Worst Pies. Sure. Worst Pies is her being presentational. This is her fully in her objective to use actor speak. Mm-hmm. She's going after something she wants here and deciding what it is that your love it actually wants, I think is incredibly important. Is the key. I feel yeah. the same way about weight is everyone talks about by the sea, mm-hmm. but weight is telling you, I think as much, if not more about her mental psyche in relation to what they've been doing. Which is the interesting thing about Mrs. Lovett. She has to be both a comic and an evil character at the same time. Mm-hmm. She's doing both of those roles. I'll say it now. I'm sure I will say this multiple times when we get to the wait episode. The way Angela Lansbury says, and who says the week is out yet? I just love the way that she says that. It makes me crack up every single time. Skittering up the scale. Yeah, yeah. She was such perfect casting. <laughs> Yeah. Her love it. There have been great love it since her. Oh, sure. But I don't think there will ever be a love it who completely tops her because it's so perfect. Completely embodies it. Thank you so much, Margaret, for coming on our show here today. This has been so great. If people wanted to get, uh, stay in contact, see what you're up to online, what are the easiest ways to do so? So, just about everything is on my website, www.margaret-hall.com. And I'm also at It's Margaret Hall on all social media, if you're trying to track me down anywhere. I've been spending a lot of time on Twitter lately, but Mm. I am on pretty much all platforms. And my website is updated just about every week with everything that's going on from teaching, newsletters, social media events, all that jazz. Yeah. And pre-order that book. Yes. Pre-order. I don't want anyone being upset that they can't get their hands on it. Uh, The thing I've been doing this season, I'm asking everyone as a final question, what is your favorite pie? Mm, Pumpkin. Good choice. Good choice. Do you put whipped cream on it or is it just plain? Ooh, uh, fresh whipped cream if you've got it. If not, depends on the quality of your pumpkin puree. I'm a bit (laughs) snobby when it comes to pumpkin pie because... My cousin actually runs a pumpkin farm out in Ohio. And so we used to spend the harvest season helping him sort of harvest the corn and the pumpkins. And so like fresh pumpkin pie does not need whipped cream. But if it's like Trader Joe's frozen pumpkin pie, (laughs) maybe grab some fresh whipped cream. (laughs) Thanks, Margaret. Thank you. 
Oh man, thank you so much for listening. Thank you, Margaret, of course, for giving her insights on this episode. You can send emails to puttingittogetherpodcast at gmail.com. You can also follow Sondheim Podcast on Twitter and Instagram. And you can support the show on Patreon by going to patreon.com slash puttingittogetherpodcast. Thank you to the Alberta Podcast Network and to the Alberta Association of Optometrists this week. Putting It Together is available on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, and pretty much anywhere that you can get podcasts from. Consider subscribing so that you never miss an episode. Next week, we're going to be talking about my friends, which means I won't have a guest. As always, a big thank you to the great Chris Taniguchi, who designed the podcast artwork and Nick Driscoll for composing our theme music. Well, we've reached the end of our episode. Yes, I know. Goodbye for now. <laughs>